to see these words with your own eyes. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, if you're not used to using a Bible, can be found on page 811. As you're turning there, Matthew 6, 6 being the larger number, we're going to look at verses 19 through 24. Those are the smaller numbers. I'm going to tell you a story I heard in an interview uh, earlier this year. It's about two young men named John and Greg. They tell this story in a book called God and Money. I heard them interviewing and talking about it uh, on a podcast. They're two young, successful Christians that were making more money than probably most you and I could dream of, especially in their early 20s. Greg was an investment banker. He was easily making two, dollars $300,000 per year. John was also quite wealthy in his early 20s. His goal in life, his password, he said, for his different internet logins was retire at 40. He created a spreadsheet and did research to find out what job could he get that would give him the biggest paycheck in the fewest amount of stressful hours. Two jobs came to the top of the list, and I know all of you are wondering what they are. The first was a dentist, and the second a petroleum engineer. John said he wanted nothing to do with staring at people's teeth all day, and how can you argue with that? Sorry if any of you are dentists. He ended up becoming a petroleum engineer and was making right off the gate $150,000 per year with very accommodating work hours. Anybody here thinking might be time for a job change? These men were faithful Christians, as I said. They were tithing regularly to their church. If you don't know, tithing is an Old Testament teaching about giving a tenth of what you have to God, your first fruits, uh, the first part of your crops if you're in an agricultural society. But then both John and Greg, around the same time, learned that they could actually make way more money than they currently were making. And the way to do it for both of them, even though it would come from different ways, was to go to Harvard Business School and get an MBA. The reason for Greg was that as an investment banker, he realized that he was just a junior guy in his firm, and that if he were to make connections in an Ivy League school, all the other guys that were the senior partners had connections from Ivy League schools. And he knew, I just need to network and get connections. So I'm going to go to Harvard Business School, and I'm going to network it like crazy. John, on the other hand, realized that if he were to get a job as a petroleum engineer overseas in another country, they would give him basically a mansion to live on for free, and he would be able to make three, dollars $400,000 a year instead of one hundred fifty. And he knew that that would take years and years of experience for him to get to that level and get a job over there. But there's a program at Harvard, if he got accepted, that he could get that fast-tracked in a year or two. He took that route and got fast-tracked, accepted into the program. While John and Greg were at Harvard Business School, they met each other at a Bible study, started talking, getting to know each other, and both of them had a friend that was in the Harvard Divinity School, like the, the, the religious school at Harvard. And they encouraged them that during one of their upcoming electives that they should take this class that was being offered called God and Money. Both of them liked money. And they both seemed to really like God, so the friend thought this would be a good fit for them. In the class, they had to do a book report, and John and Greg were partners together on this book report, and they did it on a book entitled, Why Christians 
should not tithe. Anyone want to add that to their Amazon wish list? Why Christians should not tithe? I've not read the book, but from what I hear from their description, it actually does sound good. Because if you don't know, tithing is not something that's really taught in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament teaching on the Mosaic Law. And that the New Testament teaching, as we will see in just a moment, is actually much more radical. You shouldn't just limit yourself to tithing. And this is, in fact, what happened to John and Greg. As they did this book report, as they read this book, and as they started really asking some tough questions and studying the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus, both of them realized that giving 10% of their $150,000, $200,000 incomes was hardly cutting it. It was not even making a drop in their bucket, you know? It was like, who cares? I mean, I, I would love to be able to say $25,000, I mean, you know, whatever. Just, just give it away. But it wasn't, it wasn't sacrificial. It wasn't touching them to their heart. They didn't really care about giving that money to their church, even though it was large sum compared to some of the other church members. So they began there at Harvard Business School a journey with Jesus on what he has to say about God and money. Greg ended up making some connections as an investment banker, getting into the big firm and making lots and lots more money. He ended up getting a job, and I think it was you know, almost half a million dollar per year type job. But because of this process, he ended up giving away the vast majority of that, living well below what he needed, uh, living on just what he needed and giving the rest away. That was his takeaway. Greg, um, John on the other hand, decided that he would, instead of pursuing the petroleum engineer job overseas, was offered a position because of this book report he did and they ended up publishing it and there's a whole bigger story behind it, but he took a very small paying ministry job and goes around and tells people what Jesus has to say about money. And through some of his experience at Harvard Business School, he got a huge amount of data and all kinds of crazy stories of Christians who have used their finances for the kingdom of God and they are a thousand times happier than if they would have done anything else with that money. I tell that story because I want you to realize that what I'm sharing with you today is not to try and give you a guilt trip or increase our tithing and offerings at this church. Sure, our church has needs. Sure, we have a budget. Yay, praise God, if some of you decide to give or give more. The main point of telling you that story is that both John and Greg learned something that the greatest joys in life are not going to be things. The greatest joys in life are going to be the people, the memories, and the kingdom perspectives of what to do with the things that God gives you. So let's look at our Bibles, let's read what Jesus has to say, and let's consider this text and how it can help change our hearts and perspectives. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God 
and money. As you look down at your Bible, especially if you have these black Bibles in front of you, the English Standard Version, the editors have broken our passage into three simple sections and paragraphs. On first read, I don't know if you had the same thought I did, but when you read the first paragraph, it's talking about treasures. Then you read about eyes and lamps, and then you read about not serving the master, God, or money. You've got to pick one or the other. And you're thinking, well, the first section and the last section sound like it's talking about finances and money. The middle section's kind of off. Like, what do eyes and lamps and healthy eyes and bad eyes have anything to do with this section? And I would want to argue from the start, and here's the kind of basic outline. You've got a story or a teaching of two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. And all of them are really driving home the same point. So your one big kind of point to take away is that Jesus is asking you to ask, where is your truest and highest priority? What do you value in this earth? And he wants to use these three teachings to drive home that same message And hopefully as we go through it, you'll see that even the two eyes section has to do with generosity and what we do with our life and our treasures. So let's start with the first section, the two treasures. Very literally, the translation could read this way. Stop treasuring fleeting treasures. Translated that way because there's a play on words here. The word for store up sounds a lot like the word treasure. So when you read it in the original language, it's going to sound like, stop treasuring treasures. And here it says earthly treasures, but I want to translate that word for you, fleeting, temporary treasures. Treasures. There's nothing wrong with material possessions. If you were here last week, you heard me somewhat boldly say, the gospel includes things of this earth and this world. Jesus came as a human being in bodily form. And the good news of the Bible is not that we're going to someday float up out of our human bodies and live in a spirit form, but that Jesus is going to restore and redeem the material world. Material things are good. God made the material world, and at the end of creation, he said, that's very good. We should have that same perspective as well, right from the start here. When you see the word earthly, think fleeting, temporary treasures. What is a temporary treasure, a fleeting one? Well, he says quite plainly, it's one where moth or rust can destroy. Some translations and discrepancies are that this word rust could even be rodent, like a moth or a rodent. Think of a a mouse or a rat getting in and eating up your clothes, like a moth. Or what thieves could steal. It's things that could be stolen. It's things that could be destroyed. People in Jesus' day did have banks, but they were not very common, especially for the lower income of the society. And if you know In this teaching in particular, Jesus is talking to people who would have had very little. So whatever kind of extra coins or cash that they would have acquired, they probably just hid it somewhere in their home. But thieves, they could break in, they could steal those valuable possessions. So certainly, in a more narrow sense, clothes and money seem to be what he's referring to. But in a broader sense, I would say anything that just doesn't last anything that can be destroyed, decayed, or stolen over time. I thought about this, and I sleep next to a dresser, you know, a little nightstand in my bedroom. And in that dresser is a bunch of electronics. And maybe I'm the only one, and you're so much more, less materialistic than me. But I've got like five iPhones in there that are basically sitting around doing nothing. And they've now become like kids' play toys, And again, I'm okay if you want to judge me on that, but the point is, is that 
I think technology is a good example of all the old cell phones or old computers that we have. And it doesn't take long in our technological age for things to decay, to grow old or out of fashion. Some of us don't wear some of the clothes in our closet, not because there's holes in it or because a rodent got into them, but just because, well, they're not hip or cool. They're not in anymore. And how fleeting is technology? How fleeting are fashion trends? This is the sort of thing Jesus is talking about. He's saying, stop treasuring things that are fleeting. Trying to find your ultimate joy in them. That's what he means by treasuring them. Do you find your identity in being a person who has the latest and greatest this or that? I know several of you in the room here are parents. Parents, I think it's a good thing for you to ask yourself, how are we doing at raising our children and teaching them how to invest their time, energy, and money on things that will last? Or does the example that we set and the way that we order our house value things that are fleeting? The world tirelessly wants us to keep up with certain things in the world, especially with our children. And I, I'm hoping and praying that we can create a counterculture as a church, a community of people that are willing to say, I know that's what the world's pressure is for our children and our youth. But there is a lasting treasure that is so much greater for us to demonstrate and for us to encourage them to embrace. John 6, 27, as Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So stop storing up, stop treasuring fleeting treasures. Instead, Jesus says, treasure lasting treasures, treasures in heaven. Similar to what I said last week about a misconception about heaven being some spirit place where we float up after we die, this phrase can be easily misunderstood. What are treasures in heaven? You are quizzed right now, a pop quiz. Answer the question in your mind. What do you think treasures in heaven are? And as you think about that, how many of us, especially if we're honest, are thinking about something in the future? You see, in shorthand, if I were to just boil down a big theological teaching into one shorthand definition, the word heaven in Matthew's gospel in particular but really more broadly in the scriptures, heaven should be defined as God's space, God's presence. When you see treasures in heaven, it means store up for yourselves treasures in the presence of God. So is God's presence up there when you hear treasures in heaven? Well, somewhere up there, I'm somehow depositing treasures, whatever those treasures are. Do you think of God's presence also on the earth, right here, right now, in your home, in your heart, in your life? If you're a Christian and you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, your answer should be yes. God's presence is not up there or in heaven. God's presence is here among us as we gather, the scriptures say. God's presence is in the heart of the believer who repents and believes in the gospel. So valuing and prioritizing heavenly treasures is simply valuing and prioritizing God, him and his presence on this earth now 
And that will last forever. What are the things that God values? What are the things that describe the presence of God? Certainly, some of us, our minds should quickly go to Christian practices of worship or spiritual disciplines of how to treasure the treasures of heaven. That would mean a a life and commitment to prayer, singing praises, reading God's word. We talked last week about the practice of fasting. If you treasure God's presence, God has given us a practice for how on this earth right now you can experience something that lasts forever. Food will, will come and go. My hungers in my stomach will come and go. But the presence of God in my life will last forever as I feed the spirit and I starve the flesh. Giving to the poor would be another practice. Helping widows, caring for orphans, participating in our effort to help refugees and those in a lower income housing project here in Palatine. Spending time in discipleship relationships, volunteering in this church. We have plenty of needs. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven by having heaven's presence on the earth now by devoting yourself to the works and the things of God. Treasures in heaven should not be simply thought of as something far off in the future or far off into some sort of non-physical, material, spatial, spiritual existence. Store up does not need to be thought of as you not enjoying the thing. So, for example, some of you might think, okay, so praying or fasting. I don't really enjoy that in my natural flesh, if I were to be honest. I heard that teaching last week, Pastor Phil, on fasting. Uh, I didn't really, yeah, not for me. Jesus isn't telling you, okay, do these things with a begrudging attitude because you know that one day you're going to get a big mansion in heaven when you die. The idea is to store up treasures in heaven is to value these things now because you see the value and meaning and joy that they bring starting now and lasting for eternity. Treasures that last. As one author, Dallas Willard, put in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, the treasure we have in heaven is also something very available to us now. We can and we should draw upon it as needed For it is nothing less than God himself and the wonderful society of his kingdom even now interwoven in our lives. Did you hear what he said? Treasures in heaven are available now. That's what I'm trying to encourage you to think. Treasures in heaven is nothing less than God himself, a relationship with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have God's spirit in you, then God's presence is interwoven in all of the different activities of your everyday life. So don't merely think of God's presence only when we do spiritual things like go to church and sing songs and pray and fast. Also think about God's presence being with you every day as you do the mundane things, as you ride in the car, as you put your kids to bed, as you have a long, tiring day in the office. Enjoy the treasure of having a God who can interweave his presence in everything that you do, which leads us to our second section, the two eyes. As we think about what it would look like if we started to treasure the kingdom of heaven on the earth now, we need this next teaching, which is why I think it comes right after treasure talk and where our heart is, there our treasure is. 
Let's read it again. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you will, is darkness, how great is the darkness? For any of you here, if you're hearing that, and I read it earlier, I read it again, you're like, I still don't know what that's talking about. There are plenty of people, not only in this room, but in the Christian community that have struggled over what to make sense of this. What does it mean? What does it mean, and how does this have to do with treasure? There are big-time debates about whether or not Jesus is referring to an ancient philosophical debate as to whether light is coming into the body or going out of the body. I think that those debates are fine for you to do academically. We're going to pass over them for this morning, and I think just take the general simple point for all of us. The key to understanding these verses is when you understand that the word healthy, you see that there in verse 22, that if your eye is healthy, that is a word that has double meaning. It could mean healthy like sound, like it's full and mature and healthy. It also has a connotation of being generous. If the translators would have picked that connotation, it would have made a lot more sense how this fits in the teaching, doesn't it? If your eye is generous, the Jewish people that Jesus was among and himself being a Jew had a worldview that used the metaphor of eyes and to how somebody looked at something to describe the internal reality of their hearts. It doesn't take long for you and I to start realizing that this is so true. It's a helpful teaching and illustration. The light inside of us is the goodness, the love, the generosity we have for others. So if your eyes are generous, then your whole life is going to shine a light into the world of love and generosity toward other people. So think about this in your life. Do you see in your home overwhelming joy and contentment by all that God has given you. When your eyes look out at your possessions that God has blessed you with, do you see joy? Are you happy with the size of your house when you look at it, when you pull into the driveway? When you unlock the door and you see the possessions that God has given you, do you wish that you had different ones? Are you overwhelmed with the goodness of God, how he has generously provided for your needs? If, if that's your perspective on a regular basis, can't you start seeing how the whole person is going to shine a light of joy and contentment and generosity because you're just overwhelmed. God has been so good. But what if, on the other hand, you drive in and you're like, man, I just, when are we going to get a better job and a bigger house and nicer possessions and I just got to wear these clothes to church again? Are you upset with your furniture and your, your decor? You see how this would lead to a great sadness, a discouragement, a whole life that is just struggling day in and day out? Many people have traveled around the world to know that this experience is very much a problem for us as Western American materialistic wealthy people. And I use the word wealthy in the global sense of the word. I know that maybe compared to somebody else, you'd be like, well, I'm not as wealthy as them. And that's kind of the problem. Compared to the rest of the world, all of us in this room, I would expect, are in the top 10% of the world's wealth. And so you hear stories around the world, and it helps put in perspective, like we should be overwhelmed with the opportunities and the blessings that God has given us. 
How often do we hear in the news today about immigration problems because people desperately want to be where you are and have what you have, are longing for a better chance to live in the United States of America? When you hear those things, sure, that creates all kinds of political debates and controversy, but maybe it should give us eyes of, a, of generosity, eyes of overwhelming heart of love toward those who don't have blessing. Furthermore, I was thinking about this story. Um, this is a true story. Many years ago, a major American company had an assembly plant in Panama and they were having trouble keeping their employers working on the assembly line. The reason it was hard to keep them working wasn't because they were lazy. It was because the laborers lived in an uh, agrarian uh, farming community. And the economy was very much dependent on just trading goods and the materials that they grew on their farm. But this company paid them in cash. Since the average employee had more cash after one week's worth than they would have seen in months of working on their farm. They periodically said, I got one week's worth of cash, I'm done. And they just quit. So this company's solution to the problem was to send the executives, sent all their employees catalogs of things that they could shop for online so that people would start having a covetous desire for what they did not have and then desire, oh, I need more money to start working. And it worked. Now, when I hear that story initially, I'm thinking, that's ridiculous. And then I think, oh, wait, that's what we do every day, right? <laughs> do we look at our life, our material possessions, or even our relational capital and say, I'm grateful. I have a spirit and a heart, and when I look out at what God has given me, both in the home, in my friend circles, family circles, and just say, wow, how can I serve them with a generous heart? I'm sure some of us here are unhappy with some of our friendships. You have jealousy about some of the people that are getting together this last weekend and you weren't invited. Do your eyes look with jealousy and covetousness? Or do you have a heart of generosity? A heart that can rejoice with those who are rejoicing and, and a patience to say, God, in your timing and your way. Do you have eyes that can see the, the work of God around you? Before many of us came upstairs to worship here, we were meeting downstairs in our fellowship hall for our weekly gathering to share and pray and hear what's going on in the world. I asked all of you to share around tables. What's, what's God doing in your life? How do you see God at work in the world, in your world, in the community? Are your eyes generous? Are they healthy? Can you see what God is doing? Or are you blinded by it because you're so self-absorbed with your own stuff? This is what Jesus is talking about. If we treasure things on this earth, we will get blind. We will get nearsighted. And we will miss the bigger picture of God's grander glories in our lives and in the world. A great, great practice to do anytime you're meeting up with someone for a discipleship, you're grabbing coffee with someone, is to just ask them simple questions like, hey, what do you see God doing in your life and how he's growing you right now? Just that question, even as I'm asking all of you that right now, 
It forces us to start looking for what God's doing. And that's the point of the eyes. The more you start looking, the more you start seeing those things. And this changes your whole heart, your whole life. And your heart will start to long for and want not the things that you don't have, but how you can serve and bless others with what you already do have. You know, many of us in this room do have very difficult challenges and circumstances that we are living in. I'm well aware, as your pastor, that some of you are in tough spots. And as you share your stories with me, very, very rarely can I change your circumstances or really, matter-of-factly, has God changed many of your circumstances? But one thing I regularly want to encourage all of you, whether you're in a good circumstance or a bad one, what are your eyes like? What, are your, what is your perspective like? Christians can always change their perspective. And we want to have eyes that look into the world and the needs around us and aren't just blinded by our own selfishness. The key to the last section was not treasures are bad, so stop saving money. Stop treasuring for yourself. That's the difference. Have eyes of generosity. Have treasures in heaven in the works of what God is doing around the world. The two sections are obviously related. Let's move on to the last one and see how it brings all of this teaching together. We've seen that there are two treasures, two eyes. Now, let's lastly see the two masters that Jesus refers to. I'll read it again in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The last little line, some of you might know that there's an older translation that translates it God and mammon. It's an Aramaic word. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And it's an Aramaic word that refers to an idol named mammon. It refers to the God of money. For any of you that know about Hindu or pluralistic societies, religious cultures and communities like the one that Jesus would have been living in in the Greco-Roman world of his day. There would have been lots of different statues and gods and goddesses. And depending on what you wanted, you would give your worship, your money, your sacrifices, your animal sacrifices, the cultic kind of offerings, for those of you that know those practices. And you would sacrifice them for the god for the very thing that they offer. So like Aphrodite would give you love or um, sexual experiences. The, the god of mammon would obviously give you money. And so you make enough sacrifices to the God of Mammon, well, then eventually you'll get back in return much, much more financially. That's kind of how that works. In other words, in this section, Jesus is talking about idolatry, false worship, a disordered worship. You have to make a choice. One compelling metaphor throughout the Bible is the, the metaphor of marriage. You don't commit to someone in a covenant of marriage and say, I exclusively want to love you and only you for the rest of our lives. And then in the next moment, bring somebody with you on the altar and say, oh, and by the way, I'm also going to do that with them too. I mean, how many weddings have you been to this summer where there's two brides or two grooms? Like that, that's hopefully none, right? You have to choose. You choose and say, I want to exclusively worship you, Jesus. This is ultimately a worship issue. It's an idolatry issue. One of the biggest lies that you and I have been believing is that we believe we can do both. You believe, subconsciously, well, I can choose God and money. I mean, why choose? 
That's what we do in America. Let's have it both. And as the old saying goes, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You need to choose. One, one thing we need to realize is that repentance is a turn. Turning to God through Jesus Christ means a turn away from. You can't travel north and still be going south at the same time. It's impossible for us to satisfy the desires of the sinful flesh and gratify the desires of the spirit. It's impossible. You can't do both at the same time. It's impossible to store up and treasure lasting treasures and at the same time be storing up temporary fleeting treasures. It's impossible to have generous eyes that are just looking out at the needs of the world and all that you have and say, God, use these things for the good of the world around me. At the same time, hoard it for yourself. That's the point. Jesus is concluding all of this by saying, you've got to choose. So do you know what your idols are? We're talking about money. Some of us might have the idol of money. But I want to make it clear to you that as you really get into the Christian teaching of idolatry, you need to start understanding the layers of idolatry. There are what I would call, this is coming from one of Tim Keller's helpful books, Counterfeit Gods. There are surface-level idols, and then there are the deeper idols that are really the ones that we're bowing to because the surface idols are just the external appearance. So take, for example, money, body image, sexuality, fame, careers. The deep idols for why we want those things are because there's something else that's driving us to those things. That's what we really want. And those are the things that we need to identify. If you're going to make any progress, if you want, I want to apply this teaching in my life. I want to not be a greedy person. That sounds good. Well, then you need to identify the deeper idols in your heart. So let's give a scenario here. If you were living in Jesus' day and you were a farmer and you were told that you could worship the sun god or the rain god, your surface idol would be, I want the sun to shine and the rain to come down in the appropriate amount of time so that way my crops can grow. I don't want too much rain or it will flood everything. I don't want too much sun because that will then burn everything down. So I will bow down to the surface idol. I need sun and I need rain. But underneath of that desire is a desire, let's say, for example, security. Ultimately, that farmer is not trusting in God, who is the creator of the sun and the rain, but rather they'd like to control the situation. And so they think that by their sacrifices, by their bowing down day after day to these different idols, that they're going to manipulate the situation and feel secure about what's going to come feel confident in their place and standing in the world, and obviously feel confident in their bank account. How many of us is that true of us with money? The real desire for money isn't so you can be wealthy, for some of you, so you can have security, so you can feel safe. Does the savings account ever get a little lower for some of you and start feeling like, uh-oh, I'm now getting anxious? This is kind of why the next teaching, by the way, is on anxiety. Some of us want money not because of the security that it brings. The deeper idol is that feeling of power, of success, of spending that money on the things that will then flaunt and show, well, of course I drive that kind of car because I have that kind of money. And of course I have that kind of power over you and I use my money to show off. Some of us want these things because we want to impress other people. So the surface idol is still money, 
But the deeper idol could be, I just want people to like me. And I know that if I'm dressed well, if I look cool, if I've got nice cars, people are going to like me. You like rich people. Even that generosity could be twisted in such a way where I don't even want to be generous for the sake of the goodness of serving and loving that person. I want to get love toward me. So I'm being generous, and I want to make lots of money so I can give it and people be impressed with my generosity. I'll just put a little Christian spin on it. Do you see the difference between the surface idol and the deeper idol? You need to start asking in conversations with friends, family members, people that you love and trust, especially here in this church, how you can expose the true deeper idol. You can't serve both. You will hate Jesus, he says. You will either love the one or hate and hate the other. You will hate Jesus if he is calling you to be radically generous with your money, but you feel security from your money. You're either going to love security from the money it brings, or you're going to hate Jesus, who's asking you to say, find your security in me. You will hate Jesus if he is convicting you right now about some of your unnecessary purchases that make you feel successful or powerful, or people think that you're well-dressed or look good. You will hate Jesus if he's calling you to let go of that, change your spending habits, Spend your money and your energy and your longings in your heart on things that will truly last. That's what he's calling us to right here. You either receive that because you know that there is just an endless, tireless cycle of living the world's way. And that the way of Jesus is freedom and joy and goodness and it lasts forever. It works the other way too. If you love Jesus more than anything in the world, you will hate the tyranny of people-pleasing and the way that your obsession with your body image is robbing you of a deeper joy in knowing God's love for you just as you are. If you love Jesus with all of your heart and treasure him deeply, you will hate the way approval from others, mom or dad, your friends, your boss telling you a good job, that's taking away the joy that could be yours right now, treasures in heaven on the earth that last forever. So how do we destroy these idols? If they're being exposed, if you already know, it's kind of like, I know the surface idol, I know the deeper idol. What do we do now? It's what the old hymn says. We take those eyes of ours. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth, the fleeting things of earth, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Every week at Embassy Church, we take the Lord's Supper. Every week at Embassy Church, it is my aim to help you set your eyes on the glory and grace of Jesus. So that as you see him, your eyes will start to be changed to generosity. And your body will be full of light. So today, I want you to look with your eyes, your spiritual eyes. Look at the way Jesus left all the riches of heaven and forsook his father's throne came down to the earth and wanted to store up a treasure in heaven for himself do you know the treasure that jesus was storing up when he was on the earth first peter 2 9 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation and a people of his treasured 
possession. You are chosen by God. You are seen as a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You, in God's eyes, in the eyes of Jesus, are a treasured possession. Why should you consider it all to make Jesus your treasure today? It should be obvious, because he made you his treasure. And he did it at the infinite cost of his life, the infinite cost of receiving the pain and suffering and evil of the whole world. The very wrath of God was laid upon him when Jesus gave his life. That's how much it cost. Do you know why Christians shouldn't tithe anymore? Because the radical commands of the New Testament are give the way Jesus gave, and he gave everything he possibly had. Every last drop of his blood, every breath that he breathed out as he hung on the cross and said, I treasure them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And when you see Jesus forego all of the treasures in heaven to empty himself, to become the form of a servant, and take on the lowliest of forms by hanging on the cross. And you know that he was doing all of that so he could make us his treasure. It's only then, when you look in the full, wonderful face of Jesus, do the things of the earth start to grow strangely dim. Because is there any greater glory? Is there any greater grace? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you now for Jesus, our treasure. We want to thank you for his life, his death, and his suffering on our behalf. We want to thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that all that we're talking about is not ethereal, some abstract talk about treasures that are going to happen, some far-off land when our bodies decay and get deposed. Uh, decay in the ground, and we suffer and die. God, we thank you, God, that you have given us the good news of the gospel, that the blessings of this world are not bad. We thank you that you have richly blessed us with many material blessings, and far beyond that,